think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. Hello, cassettes, and welcome back to the Black Case Diaries. Oh, hello. Ooh, hey. hey. <laughs> it's finally frightening February no. once again. Yes. And we are thrilled to be learning everything we can about spooky movies and TV and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Robin. I'm Marcy. I'm Adam, I guess. Hey. <laughs> welcome back. This frightening February is going to be a little different than usual with our very special live episode at the end of the month. So at the end of this month, we're having a live episode. Yeah. Instead yes. of a regular yeah. one. A very live one that you need to uh, join because mm -hmm. it'll be great. Yes. But for right now, we're celebrating this monstrous month with another full-length episode. Yeah. Yeah. Ayo. Uh. Back in the era regarded as the golden age of Hollywood, there were five big studios that essentially controlled film production. Back then, studios were vertically integrated, which meant that every stage of production happened in-house. The studios even owned the theaters that would show their films, and actors weren't paid by the picture, but instead had salaries and contracts. Because of this system, it was virtually impossible for independent artists to break into the industry. Besides the big five, there were a few smaller studios, that produced films that weren't widely distributed because they owned fewer theaters. Universal Pictures was one of them. Founded in 1912 by Carl Lemley, Universal achieved fame for producing popular low-budget serials starting in 1914. And although it didn't produce the most prestigious film content of the time, Universal developed a reputation as a studio that catered to its audience. So, when other studios turned up their noses at a genre that focused on thrilling moviegoers with grotesque visuals and terrifying tales, Universal had found what would become their most well-known niche, monster movies. Yes! While MGM was filming Dorothy as she skipped down the yellow brick road to see The Wizard of Oz, a film in production that was a horror film in its own right, <laughs> Universal, <laughs> Universal was in the middle of building a cinematic universe so iconic that it would change the horror genre forever. Between 1923 and 1960, they produced 43 films that would become known as the Universal Monster Movies. Tonight, we're looking into the bone-chilling history of some of these movies and discussing the indelible mark they made on cinematic history. Oh, 43 Yeah, films. that's a lot. Yeah. So grab some popcorn and your comfiest blanket. It's time for a monstrous film history lesson. Oh, boy. Yay. Yeah. This episode's all about history. Woo! History. I mean, every episode we do is, but like yeah. this one a little more. This than one. Usual. Yeah, this one feels a lot more. This one's a little more jam-packed. Yeah. Historical. <laughs> get ready. Let's get historical. Oh, so what do you guys think of the Universal Monster movies? They, do you guys have favorite monsters? They are incredibly <laughs> iconic in every facet of like horror and spooky things, right? They yeah. are icons of Halloween. They are icons of this genre. It's mm. just, you know, everyone recognizes most of yeah. these things, yeah. right? Yep. Frankenstein, Dracula, Mummy. Mm-hmm. The Invisible Man, you can go on, right? Yep. And if I had to pick a favorite, I don't know if I could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There there are really good ones. I yeah. I, I always like the Wolfman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just something about it. 
is just cool. Yeah, but, but they're all good. Yeah. yeah, there's such a there's such a personal nature to the Wolfman, and yeah. when we yeah. we will not talk about that movie today. No. But when we do, we're gonna get to talk about that a little yes. bit more. So I do really like that one. I've always liked Creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't know what it is about that one. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like yeah. I always like the design of that mm-hmm. creature, yeah. and like yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah, I think after talking about horror last year. Frankenstein kind of stands out yeah. just because of just the social message that it has. Mm-hmm. The message and just Frankenstein being so influential and iconic. And yeah. Prob- probably, yeah. 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 Just, I mean, just about, just probably the most famous of all of the movies. Yeah. Right. I would yeah. say. We, 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 we talked about Frankenweenie, which is, yes. you know, essentially the same exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So just with a dog. All right. So let's get into some history, guys. We're going to talk about the... Dive right in. Yeah, so we're going to start by just talking about the history of the Universal Monster-verse. Juicy. You can close your eyes now. It's time for a nap. (laughs) Nap time with the VC. (laughs) Let me lull you to sleep. Hollywood has always been a tough industry to break into, but back in the early days of film, it was essentially impossible. The already established studios held patents for nearly every kind of film equipment, meaning that no one could use the tools needed to create motion pictures without certain permissions. Enter Carl Lemley, a German-born Jewish immigrant who sought to defeat what he called the film octopus. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Lemley forged ahead, generally disregarding the lawsuits that stood in his way. He purchased the now-historic Universal Studio lot, with the intention of creating full-length films. Most features at the time ran for about 20 minutes. He was sued over 200 times for violating patent law and eventually changed the film industry forever. Wow. wow. Just Dang. ignore it, basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so go Carl Lindley. <laughs> he was important. He was, the, he was like this rogue, renegade, outlaw movie maker. Yes. Yes. Love those. <laughs> Even though Lemley was personally against making dark, gothic films, horror would soon become the perfect genre for his studio. Horror films are subversive, disregarding certain cultural norms and featuring characters and actors that didn't fit Hollywood's picture-perfect aesthetic. It's a genre that appeals to outcasts, people that seemingly didn't have a place and were forced to create their own. Yeah. 100%. I mean, yeah. th- when you look at old movies, you it just feels that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you get those same handsome actors <laughs> yes. and very, very beautiful actresses. Mm-hmm. And it's just these very clean movies. I mean, sure, yeah. some of the happenings of those movies yeah. is not like clean, quote unquote, but it just felt very polished. And mm-hmm. that's Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> But the horror movies didn't have to right. follow any of that. And no. and it's that trope that yeah. like who likes horror movies? Weirdos. Yeah. Weirdos <laughs> like horror movies, yeah. right? Yeah. That's that's you the know. we see it in movies and TV all the time. He's quirky. He likes horror, you yeah. know. Yeah. Oh my gosh, she's not like other girls, you know. <laughs> like you you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. see that stuff all the time. And a lot mm-hmm. of it, you know, we talked about this in our history of horror episode. From a couple of years ago, which I yeah. highly recommend if anybody wants to learn more about the history of horror yes. as a genre. But it, we talked about it in that episode where, you know, for the first time, some people were getting represented that were not represented before. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it was in a very negative way as like bad guys and monsters and yeah. that kinds of stuff. Yeah. But they were at least 
seeing themselves on the screen yeah. and in some capacity. And then, you know, obviously it evolved over time and it's not quite like that anymore, thank God. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was mainstream because of that, because yeah. so many people identified with these yeah. stories. Mm-hmm. The first Universal monster films were produced during the silent film era. Irving Thalberg, a 21-year-old secretary-turned-studio manager, produced an adaptation of Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923. At the time, the film was meant to be a historical drama, but it was Lon Chaney's performance as the titular character that grabbed the audience's attention. It wasn't a monster movie. No. I mean, Quasimodo was not supposed to be a monster. Right. You were supposed to feel bad for him. Like, he right. was a sympathetic character. Yes. Yeah, you're supposed to be like, oh, That's what, the what bad are you guys doing to him? him? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Chaney had been acting in film since 1912. He was known as the man with a thousand faces because of his ability to transform into a variety of characters. His connection to audiences through his facial expressions was unmatched in the silent film era and his mastery of makeup thrilled moviegoers. As Quasimodo, Cheney suffered while wearing a heavy plaster bodysuit and prosthetics that obscured his features. Cheney returned to the silver screen two years later in The Phantom of the Opera. This film will become a visual blueprint of sorts for the universal horror films to come. This was really the first one. This was, like, really the right. first yep. it, it, monster movie. Even just based on the name of the movie? Yeah. yeah. It's... Feels like it should be the first one, you know, yes. the Phantom, of, Phantom the of the Opera. Carl Lemley chose the Phantom of the Opera specifically as a vehicle for Lon Chaney. The French novel by Gaston Leroux wasn't nearly as well known at the time, but the story's main character, a composer that hides his true face behind a mask and lives beneath the Paris Opera, matched Chaney's talents. Universal censored Cheney's makeup in all promotional material and encouraged rumors that moviegoers were fainting at the sight of the Phantom. Some theaters even had ambulances stationed outside to suggest that the film would be too much for some viewers. The scene of the Phantom's unmasking became one of the most iconic moments in the silent film era. You've seen it. Yeah. If you've seen any any compilation of movies and classic movies and stuff, you've seen yeah. she reaches very 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 slowly yeah. over over his face. He's playing piano. Yeah. She pulls it off and he he looks right into the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cheney had worked to make his appearance as close to the book description as possible. However, it's easy to see how the physical affliction of the Phantom matches the injuries that many men sustained during World War One. Yeah. This is one of those things you're talking about in the past about how horror kind of mimics real life events. Yeah. You know, and something that was really, really scary at the time was, you know, war and the long term effects of it and people coming home from war and, and having illnesses and different kind of afflictions and things that were caused by the war. And so yeah. the Phantom looks like somebody who might have been a victim of some sort of physical trauma. I mean, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it kind of matches that kind of the thing like, people were yeah. happening. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 like you said, it is that perfect blueprint. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. it, it has the, that trope. So. Yeah. Another iconic part of the film was a set of the Paris Opera House. It was the first steel and concrete stage created for Hollywood production and remained preserved for 90 years in Universal Studio 28. Incredible. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. That's <laughs> I know. a long time. Has anything come close to that record? I don't know. No, it. It, it, no, it was, it was so. the, the oldest studio in yeah, the world. Yeah, I imagine. It, or the oldest set in the world, yeah. 
Ben Correa, a Frenchman familiar with the real opera house, designed the set. Although the film is in black and white, you will get a glimpse of the opera set in two-color Technicolor during the masquerade sequence. Yeah. So obviously full color films weren't a thing until the, the <laughs> no. you know, mid to late 30s. Mm-hmm. So this is like 10 years before that. And we've got one scene where you see the Phantom coming down the stairs in yep. like two color Technicolor. And he's got this like skull mask on. Yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> and, terrifying. Right. And he's this red. This, yeah. I mean, this. Yeah. He's got this red cape and it's like a blood color. Yes. Basically. Yes. Yeah. This skull mask is cool these this is another one of those moments in history that i wish i could have like been in the theater to see mm-hmm. yeah i want to I see the reaction of the first audience to see something like that yeah yeah you know? i mean they said people screamed like right crazy <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you know was that true or i know i mean they right. start to question is that it good marketing they had plants so yeah some people fainted in the aisles yeah. they had plants that would faint in the aisles <laughs> And stuff like that. And going back to the Opera House set being 90 years old. So it was built in like 1924. And then 2014, they demolished Studio 28 on the Universal lot in California. They said it was to make way for the theme park. More stuff in the theme park. And it was still in use at the time. Like, I mean, it was used right up until they demolished it. it so well. It was perfectly preserved in there. They had made plans to meticulously move it, move it? and okay. move the internal yeah. set, move the set of the Phantom of the Opera House. Okay. I don't, but the thing but is, like, I found, yes, right? I found articles of them talking about doing that in 2014, but if you did that, where is it? Yeah. Because I can't find, find anything about where it is now. Mm. Yeah. The film had a long and expensive production, but it proved worth it in the end. The Phantom of the Opera was a massive success and is considered by many to be the first, quote-unquote, monster movie. But it wasn't until 1931 that Universal would produce the first supernatural horror talkie, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh my goodness. Here we go. Yes. Now you can wake up now. These are the kind of things that without them... None of the rest would happen. Yeah. Yeah. Right? We wouldn't have yep. it would we'd be in a totally different timeline right now mm-hmm. if the Phantom and the Opera didn't exist in the way that it does. Yeah. Right? So it's important stuff. Yes. Exactly. Yes. This For is cinema exciting. as a whole. It's exciting. Yes. Yes. So what we're gonna do is we're just gonna kinda go through and talk about the two First, really big universal horror monster movies. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have time to do the rest of them, and we want to do a part two yes. at some point. But tonight, we're just going to talk about the first two. And Woo. you get an A plus if you already know what those are. Yay. Yeah. Besides the fact that I literally just I said know, Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't remember what she just said. <laughs> if you like if you little, if you were yeah. still asleep when I got to the end of the last one. Yeah. <sighs> <All right>. Yeah. <laughs> so without further ado, we will first be talking about Dracula. 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 Bram Stoker's novel Dracula was released in 1897. The story is told through letters, diaries, and newspaper clippings. Although it doesn't have a single protagonist, it begins with lawyer Jonathan Harker traveling for work to stay at Count Dracula's castle. The Count relocates to England and terrorizes the seaside village of Whitby when Harker escapes the castle and learns that Dracula is a vampire. Dracula is hunted by a tiny party commanded by Abraham Van Helsing, who eventually kills him. 
I I actually really like how this mm-hmm. story is kind of told yeah. in this way because it's so, I don't know, it feels kind of real that way. Yeah. It, it feels very real. It yeah. feels like Bram Stoker just collected all of this information right? yeah. from different people and different diaries. And in some ways he kind of did. I mean, he pulled from local legends and he pulled yeah. from accounts from different people and stuff. But like, in, obviously he created these characters and everything. Mm-hmm. So, but he did. He wrote it in such a way that it seemed like you were legitimately reading a real story. Yeah, yeah it's cool. It's like you yeah. unearthed something that's yeah. like meant to be hidden. It's yes. like something they covered up. Yeah. Oh, it's, no. it's really cool. <laughs> that is is so neat. Yes. Terrifying. The majority of Dracula was written in the 1890s. For the book, Stoker wrote almost a hundred pages of notes, heavily referencing Transylvanian history and folklore. There is a dispute regarding the claim that the character of Dracula was influenced by historical characters like the Countess Elizabeth Bathory or Vlad the Impaler, though both individuals are referenced in Stoker's notes. So according to NPR, Dracula refers to son of Dracul, which means son of the dragon or son of the devil. Whoa, (laughs) that's pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. (laughs) Pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, the name Dracula has always been a really cool name, to be honest with you. It's just a really cool villain Mm -hmm. slash monster slash supernatural sounding name. Yeah. 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 It's got a good ring to it. Yeah. So here is a little bit of a summary for you. In order to close a deal with Count Dracula, an estate agent named Renfield travels to Transylvania. Despite some of the neighbors' warnings, Renfield is unaware that Dracula is a vampire, and the visitor quickly becomes his unwilling servant. They sail to England, but when the ship arrives at the harbor, Renfield is the only one still alive. After moving into Carfax Abbey, Count Dracula immediately begins his quest to seduce the lovely Mina, who resides next door. Professor Van Helsing, who is fully aware of who Dracula is, is the only one left to halt the spread of his evil. Oh, man. (laughs) It sounds just like a really cool fantasy story. I don't know. It's just, that's just it. So when Carl Lemley Jr. took over Universal, he was interested in dark, gothic storytelling. He suggested making an adaptation of a popular John Balderson play that had been highly successful. It was called Dracula, and it starred Bella Lugosi. Carl Lemley Sr. was vehemently against the idea, asserting that no audience would be able to believe such a fantastic story. Many other film studios agreed, as they all turned down the chance to make the film. But Lemley Jr. persisted. So, this sounds, it sounds ridiculous, right? <laughs> yeah. But this was their problem. Their problem was that they didn't think people would believe this movie about a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> and at this point in time, American horror films, or horror films in general, just they, they didn't have very many supernatural elements to them. They didn't think American audiences would believe that. So generally it was like, you know, it was like Scooby-Doo. Like every movie yeah. was like Scooby-Doo, mm-hmm. where it was like, 
old man Corcoran, you know, like every instead of like, yeah, yeah. you're yeah. the ghost That's haunting like, the lighthouse, you know, it had to be an explanation. Yeah, there's always like a human behind it causing it, you know, like in the end, the Phantom and the Phantom of the Opera was a man, right. you know what I mean? So, That's true. you know, this whole idea is that people really, the studios did not think that audiences would be able to suspend their belief and think that the, even for only uh, two hours. That vampires exist. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, 75 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Dracula began filming on September 29th, 1930. The production was shot mostly in continuity, which was and is a pretty rare way to film. The first words were spoken by Carla Lemley, the niece of Universal Studios founder Carl Lemley. Yeah. That's cute. Nice. So, yeah, so the movie starts with this carriage, and it's like a super mm-hmm. bumpy carriage, mm-hmm. and they're, they're all, like, trying jostled. to ride, ov- ride over the mountains, and this girl is, she's reading, like, from a book out mm-hmm. loud yeah. in the carriage, and so she reads, like, the first line, and then she gets thrown across the carriage to the oh other side, gosh. and they're like, hey, like, slow down. <laughs> yeah. She gets literally thrown on somebody's yeah. lap. So that's her. Wow. She, she reads the first line. Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> the film was meant to be a large production, but had to be scaled back due to the Great Depression. Instead of basing the film largely around Bram Stoker's book, it was adapted mostly from the John Balderson stage play to save time and money. And when you have a star that starred in the play, that's true. It's easier for him to play the character. Yep. (laughs) He already knows it less Mm -hmm. time. Dracula was almost directed by Paul Lenny, a filmmaker who played a key role in the German Expressionism movement. He directed some of Universal's silent horror films, like The Man Who Laughs and The Cat That Ate the Canary. Lenny, unfortunately, developed fatal blood poisoning and was later replaced by Todd Browning. Yeah, it's important to mention him and, like, mention just the German expressionism because we talked about this before. I know I sound like a broken record, but we talked about this before. German expressionism is a huge part of early horror films. Yes, it was a major influence. They were all basically, like, German impressionist paintings. Browning was a successful silent film director, which translated well to the eerily silent Dracula. Audiences were used to full soundtracks accompanying silent films, so the lack of music in many of this film's scenes added tension. The minimal dialogue may have been for the best, as many theaters still did not have sound capabilities. So the film was also released in silent versions. That's nice. They kind of made it available for For everybody. (laughs) Carl Frund helped direct, but was uncredited. Frund was responsible for the camera visuals and was very vocal on the set. He was a pioneer of using tracking shots and movement with the camera. That's nice. That's cool. Yeah. In fact, uh, somebody on one of the special features said that when people mentioned the directors, like they didn't remember Todd Browning really, but they remembered Ah. (laughs) uh, because he was... Uh, Frund because he was just so vocal about everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he left. He left an impression. Yeah, he him. left an impression That's because funny, you man. got you yeah. got told something yeah. was was right or wrong. After creating many set designs for Charlie Chaplin, art director Charles D. Hall came to Universal in 1923, where he designed The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera, Dracula, Frankenstein, and other sets. It is said that when he was designing the set for Dracula. He became so enthralled by the story that he locked himself in the studio 
and worked overnight, causing sleep deprivation. Yikes, dude. Mm -hmm. At the time when Dracula was filmed, it was common to release in other languages, especially Spanish. Instead of dubbing over the English cast, a whole new cast, crew, and director were hired. Director George Melford and his cast and crew filmed at night after the English crew was done for the day. Melford was able to complete filming on a smaller budget and within half the time. The Spanish crew had an advantage by being able to see the dailies from the English production. This allowed for the analysis of shots and better ways to film and light. Many people believe that the Spanish version was technically a better film. Melford used techniques that made it more fluid and dramatic. The Spanish version is 29 minutes longer, contains more dialogue, and places more importance on religious aspects. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I, they didn't dub back then. They were like, no, we'll just make a whole other movie. We'll just film yeah. it twice. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. And also, I mean, from all accounts, this movie's better. Like, this is a better version yeah. of Dracula. Yep. Except for one thing... They don't have Bela Lugosi in it. And no. because of that, yeah. you know what I nah. mean? I yeah. mean, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. They, they said, like, honestly, if, if he had been in the Spanish version of Dracula, yeah. I mean, that'd be it, dude. Yep. Yeah. That'd be that'd it. Be Game changer. That, that would be the movie. If there was some way to combine these two movies together, yeah. done. Like, if you watch the shots like, next to each other mm-hmm. of the English and the Spanish version, <laughs> like, it's just, it's so much more dynamic and interesting, yeah. Yeah. you know? It's just, yeah, it's a way, it's just a way more interesting movie. Yeah, it's just like, you know, you, you, if you get to look and see what they did, it's like, well, how do we improve each yes. little piece exactly. of it? Exactly. Yeah. So. They yeah. used equipment, they used, new, they, like, they wanted to one-up the yeah. production as yeah. much as possible. I think they even, that was their goal. They were yeah. like, we are going to make a better movie. And they, they, <laughs> they succeeded. They did. Yeah. yeah. Dracula would not have been nearly as iconic without the performance of its actors, especially Bela Lugosi. When Carl Lemley Jr. secured the rights to make Dracula, he specifically stated that he did not want Bela Lugosi for the role. Funny, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, they, like, they, he sent a telegram saying, I do not want, I do not want him. <laughs> <laughs> Lemley had been told that he would only be able to secure funding for the film if the legendary Lon Chaney played both the part of Dracula and Van Helsing. Kind of funny, isn't it? Which mm-hmm. is yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you do that? Sadly, Lon Chaney was terminally ill with lung cancer and was not an option for the studio. That part sucks. Yeah, no, yeah. it really it really does. I think the death of Lon Chaney was it was kind of a surprise and mm-hmm. yeah. It was a big deal. It was a huge blow. Another option had been Conrad Veidt, who had been in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but he had moved back to Germany and was afraid that his imperfect English would not do well on screen. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, there is. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was an incredibly influential silent horror film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people think the first horror film. Yeah. Maybe. It's terrifying. It is. Mm-hmm. It's actually super yep. scary. Yep. But also, so yeah, this was a big problem when talkies came about. Yeah. You had a lot of European actors that looked American on screen as yep. long as they you didn't hear their voices and then... Once talkies became a thing, they stopped being in movies because they were like, people aren't going to like hearing me. Even though all the story advisors were telling him no, Lemley Jr. continued to push forward with the film. Finally, they considered Bela Lugosi because his stage performance 
of the role in the previous summer had done so well. Lugosi was so insistent on playing the role that he got the studio's attention by accepting pay that was a fraction of the salary that the juvenile lead received. Yeah. Which is madness. Yes. yes. He, it literally is. The movie, we cannot state this enough, the yeah. movie would not have been nearly as successful without him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he yep. carried this movie on his back. Yes. And yet... And he got a fraction of the pay. <laughs> because they just yeah. didn't want him to yeah. do it. They yeah. just didn't... Looking back, it's like, how could you ever <laughs> yeah. consider yeah. someone else? I don't understand. It's interesting, like, isn't it? The mindset that they had to have been in. It I just... think maybe he just wasn't scary enough. I yeah, don't know. Because like, yeah. they wanted Lon Chaney to do it. Exactly. And... It would have been a very different movie with mm-hmm. Lon Chaney. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people wonder, like, what, what would it have been if yeah. it was Lon Chaney? Lugosi was a well-practiced stage actor that had a hypnotic stare and an exaggerated way of reading lines. Fun fact, Lugosi was buried in a replica Dracula cape. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Right? So if they ever unearthed him. Yeah. Yeah, if he comes back (laughs) to life, he's already dressed the part. Exactly. He was ready. Yeah. Edward Van Sloan played Van Helsing, a character that would become synonymous with vampire hunting. He also had big parts in Universal's Frankenstein, The Mummy, and Dracula's Daughter. Dracula's Daughter was a movie, a follow-up movie that wasn't nearly as successful years Mm -hmm. later. But the one big thing about Dracula's Daughter that makes it super important is that in Dracula, this movie... Dracula is not sympathetic at all. (laughs) He does not care that he kills people. Mm -hmm. He has no remorse. And in a lot of these monster movies, that's, you know, they're sympathetic. The characters are far more sympathetic. And in Dracula, eh, not at all. Nope. But Dracula's daughter, she did care. And she kind of felt bad about it. And she wanted to break the curse of being a vampire. And it didn't work. And she was killed anyway. But... But Spoilers. the idea of a sympathetic vampire, <laughs> yeah. which is far more popular yes. now. Mm-hmm. What? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was because of Dracula's daughter versus uh, Dracula. Yeah. Uh, Helen Chandler plays the part of Mina Harker, the young woman that Dracula takes an interest in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dwight Fry played Renfield, Dracula's bug-hungry henchman and unwilling manservant. Fry was typecast throughout his career after this role. Yeah. After the commercial and critical success of Dracula, Universal released Frankenstein later that same year. Then, with more pictures like The Mummy from 1932, The Invisible Man from 1933, Bride of Frankenstein 1935, and The Wolfman of 1936, Universal would rise to the top of early horror cinema. Dracula has quite literally an undying legacy. Yes, pun intended. (laughs) Its adult themes and suggestive imagery struck a previously untouched nerve in audiences everywhere. Uh huh. <laughs> Horror films were also sexy. That yeah. was something else <laughs> that made them a little different. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? They probably got, yeah. you know, they're like, you know, the average masses aren't watching this. Yeah. This is for the weirdos. These and movies, <laughs> these movies, people were confused yeah. about yeah. how they were supposed to feel yeah. about a girl laying. You know, helpless in a bed, yep. and Dracula standing over her body. Yeah, people were confused. They were like, "What do I? What do I think about this?" Yeah, and then what he'd, am I... he'd bite her neck, and it was like, mm. Tasty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> oh no. <laughs> what? <laughs> I can't have feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I live in the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> There's no time for that here. Yeah, nope. <laughs> Not allowed. The German expressionist aesthetic paid homage to the silent era horror films before it and gave viewers something both familiar and groundbreaking. But Dracula's legacy would be almost non-existent without the performances of Bela Lugosi and Dwight Fry as Dracula and Renfield. Through their facial expressions, they are able to leave a lasting impression on the viewer, just like the face-based acting of the silent era. Renfield enters and exits situations with just the proper amount of craziness to keep his character engaging and irritating at all times. <laughs> That's important. Yes. Bella Lugosi's Dracula has impacted how we see vampires today. Lugosi continuously fixes his vacant, hollow gaze on the camera, and the actor would come to be recognized for it. Lugosi had a very handsome face and intense stare. Because of this, the idea of the beautiful vampire has stuck around. Some examples of recent 21st century vampires show this to be true, like Twilight and the Vampire Diaries. We also now associate large, sweeping staircases, webs, dustiness, eeriness, and more with vampires because of Dracula. Yes, and, and the Twilight Vampire and the Vampire Diaries and all of that, again, the sympathetic vampires yes. came yeah. later. <laughs> Lugosi went on to appear in other horror films, including Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. A true horror classic. Yeah, oh my gosh. Exactly. <laughs> that was the scariest one of all. I'm sure Adam couldn't even handle that one. Yeah, nope. <sighs> well, that's Dracula. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Woo. there's so much vampire content out there. I yep. mean, not just movies, just characters in other shows are just vampires for cuz yeah. you know just to throw them in there yeah but they all have their own unique spin however there are still those attributes that we all recognize yeah. as vampire yeah and bela lugosi what if he really was the only person for dracula i think yeah. you know they talked about how he would a lot of people on the set and production were not taking it very seriously mm -hmm. and they said that they would they would say cut and he would just walk up and down the the set oh my gosh um wow. and look, staring at himself in the mirror watching him walk and he would say uh, i am dracula like he would do that like nice. flipping yeah. his cape around That's he, I mean, he very was very odd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was but very committed. If, if I was, if I was like crew on that set, I'd be like, mm. <laughs> you don't think you'd want to go and hang out with him? No. Okay. <laughs> While Dracula may have been the first supernatural horror talkie, the next film in the Universal catalog would one day be known as a masterpiece of horror. Directed by James Whale, Frankenstein also premiered in 1931. The original story of Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley. The idea came over an 1816 vacation in Geneva when she, her husband Percy Bash Shelley, and their friends Lord Byron and John Polidori were stuck inside for multiple days due to inclement weather. After discussing many horror stories, Lord Byron proposed a competition to write the best ghost story. Wow. Shelley, who was only 19, produced the concept of Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. Needless to say, she won the competition. 
The origin story of Frankenstein is portrayed in the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein is a later movie. Yeah. And at the very beginning, we have a really fun little scene <laughs> where they show them stuck inside on a rainy vacation. Mm -hmm. Astonishing creature. I love Byron. Frightened of thunder, fearful of the dark. And yet you have written a tale that sent my blood into icy creeps. <laughs> Look at her, Shelley. Can you believe that bland and lovely brow conceived of Frankenstein? A monster created from cadavers out of rifled graves? Isn't it astonishing? Such a crazy thing <laughs> that that happened. It, it, like, you, you don't imagine something this profound yeah. and important to literature <laughs> in yeah. general to have come from something as silly as uh, just a writing competition between, yeah. like, friends. Right. Yeah. The novel was a success, and it translated well to the stage. The very first on-screen adaptation of Mary Shelley's work was done in 1910 by Thomas Edison. The stage play that influenced the movie Frankenstein the most premiered in 1927 and was written by Peggy Webling. In the stage production, the actor Hamilton Dean wore a wig, had a mixture of greens and yellows and blues for face makeup, and wore lifters under his shoes to look bigger. So early ideas of Frankenstein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. Of what he might look like. The Franken Frankenstein's monster, quote unquote monster in the book, it, there really isn't a lot of description, but also it's just like, you just kind of imagine a bunch of dead body parts. Like, yeah. yeah. The yeah, idea you, of him being tall with the thick shoes and the yeah. green face and the square head, I, uh, the bolts on his neck, I don't, you know, that's not, I <laughs> where don't. Where did it come from? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just. You just think flesh that's exposed. Yes. And like, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Just think of a really ugly looking dude like yeah. that's pretty yeah. much what it was in the book <laughs> so for those of you who haven't seen this 1931 version of frankenstein here's a summary a clever scientist named henry frankenstein has been experimenting with reviving dead bodies after experimenting on tiny creatures he is now prepared to instill life in a creature he has built from body pieces Due to the excessive amount of time he spends in his laboratory conducting his research, his fiancée Elizabeth and friend Victor Moritz are concerned for his health. He is successful, and the life he has created is kind, but confused and unable to interact with the world around him. Henry's father, Baron Frankenstein, convinces him that the monster should be eliminated humanely. However, the creature escapes, and in its innocence, it murders a young girl. The people of the town rise up, determined to slay the misunderstood being. Aww. The scene with the little girl is yeah. really hard to watch, yeah. I think, mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. But I think it's just like, as you're watching it, you're just wait, you're just like so on edge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's, <sighs> you, you know... It, it happens in a lot of movies and TV where you kind of understand the story already. And you're yeah. just seeing this. It's like you know something bad is about to happen. happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the anticipation. Since Dracula was such a large hit, Lumley Jr. had an easier time getting Frankenstein as the next movie. Frankenstein would require far more special effects than Dracula. The production spent $10,000 on the equipment that would create the lightning needed for the film's most iconic scene. $10,000. Yeah. 1931. That's a lot wow. for one part. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I mean, mm-hmm. of course it created like the most iconic yeah, mad scientist of moment yeah. of history. <laughs> yeah. But still. it's a lot of money. <laughs> Frankenstein's monster is one of the most memorable images of the 20th century. However, his looks did not come directly from Mary Shelley's book. Her description leaves a lot to the imagination. The look of the monster may have come from a character that James Whale played on the stage in a play called A Man with Red Hair. The story is of a woman who is trapped in a marriage and a man that tries to help her out of it. It is based on a book, A Portrait of a Man with Red Hair. The book description says, The man standing beside her was not much more than a boy, but Harkness thought that he had seldom perceived an uglier countenance. A large, broad nose, a long, thin face like a hatchet, gray, colorless eyes, and a bony body upon which the evening clothes sat awkwardly. Here was ugliness itself, but the true unpleasantness came from the aloofness that lay in the unblinking eyes, the hard, straight mouth. Ugh. Okay. Frankenstein's walk may have been inspired by a character in the 1927 film Sunrise. The character wore boots made with lead. Hmm. Okay, yeah. We've got the big, heavier. bulking boots. Yeah. yeah. You know? It, it always kind of, I guess it makes sense, because it always kind of reminded me of the way zombies walk, like the stereotypical mm. zombie yeah. walk. Yeah, yeah. But he kind of is one in a way, right? Right. He, mm-hmm. he was just created in a lab this time. Yeah, so. yeah. Legendary makeup artist Jack Pierce brought Frankenstein's monster to life with groundbreaking special effects makeup and a little help from Boris Karloff himself. Jack Pierce. The 1910 Edison version that was mentioned previously displayed a large forehead and may have inspired the elongated section of the head. The brow was made using cotton, collodion, and spirit gum. It was built up on Karloff's head every day that they shot. Damn. I would get, oh, yeah. and then imagine just like taking all that gunk off, like yeah. And they Ooh. said they said the spirit, I believe it was the spirit gum, had a very like alcohol awful smell, oh. and so like having that on every day, I cannot even imagine. I just imagine Bro. the headaches. I know yeah. it probably gave. I mean, I can't. It had I, to have. I know what it's like to wear grease paint all day. Mm. Yeah, and even that isn't fun. Yeah. So. <laughs> For real. Karloff felt his eyes looked too alive, so he had Pierce build up the lids with mortician's wax. So that his eyes looked droopy. Yeah. Karloff had false teeth, which he removed so that he could suck in his cheek during his performance. Yeah. Just like the sallow That's kind of a lucky thing. Yeah. Yeah. Even more than, yeah. (laughs) It took about three to three and a half hours to apply all the makeup. Dude, that that's one part of Hollywood in general that just I don't understand. <laughs> that that part of it would make me go, well, we'll just CG. <laughs> as much as I love practical, I couldn't imagine sitting in a the chair yeah. and just have people putting stuff on me for three and a half hours. Yeah. Oh. Charles Hall worked with James Whale to create the Mad Scientist Lab, which had the iconic tower. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Within this tower is a plethora of machinery that gives off sparks. Kenneth Strickfadden was responsible for these light-producing mechanisms that he named the Megavolt Senior, the (laughs) Neutron Analyzer, 
Cosmic Ray Diffuser, and the Baratron Generator. That guy <laughs> should have written for sci-fi. Yes. I know, right? Those are the most sci-fi names. Yes. Baratron Generator <laughs> sounds like what would power the Enterprise. <laughs> One scene required an intense amount of electrical power that Karloff was not comfortable being around. When this scene was shot, Strick Fadden doubled for Karloff. At one point, he came into contact with a million volts, which lifted him off the ground. Good lord. <laughs> Dude, why? Dude, this guy yeah. was a mad scientist. Yeah, he literally Holy was. Cow. He legitimately yeah. was. And he, he lived after that, too. Dude. He lived to at least 85. Dude, some later. people are just built different. Like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. A million yeah. volts? Like, yeah. bro. I hope he got superpowers after it, at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they promoted the film by placing ambulances and people screaming in the showings. At one point, Bela Lugosi was considered for the leading role. He maintained that he turned down the part of Frankenstein's monster because it was just a grunting creature. According to Hollywood rumors, however, Carl Lemley Jr. saw the screen test of Lugosi as Frankenstein, and he did not like it, supposedly even laughing at the image of Lugosi in makeup. Boris Karloff was a relatively unknown actor at the time, but James Whale felt like he had the right qualities. Legend has it that James Whale saw Boris Karloff in the commissary and thought that he would be perfect for the role. Karloff was a bit hurt because he was wearing his best suit that day and was well-dressed. He was smart enough, however, to still take the role. Oh. So he came over, he said he, yeah. was, he was enthralled by his cheekbones. He saw his cheekbones oh. and was like, oh, all right, this guy. Wow, you look dead. Yeah, you, got some monstrous, you got some monstrous cheekbones. Yeah, your face looks hollow. Um, yeah. This was Karloff's 81st role, and he lost 25 pounds during filming. He had been in a lot of stuff, but he still yeah. wasn't really like a household name. Mm -hmm. Though Karloff referred to the monster as his very best friend, he ended up having three back surgeries from all that he had to put his body through for the film. The role required lots of heavy lifting. Yeah. Uh, excuse me? Yeah. Yep. Back surgery? Mm-hmm. Yep. Three. Yeah. No thanks. And you know, he had three back surgeries, and he uh, appeared as Frankenstein two times after. Yeah. Uh. And after those two times, he said, no. No more. Not doing it anymore. Oh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't blame him. Nope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For eventually yeah. putting that to bed. He, yeah, destroyed his body yeah. for art. <laughs> so many, so many of them do, right? Yep. You know? Yep. Yep. Yeah, wow. Dedication. Yep. Dracula may have jump-started the monsterverse, but Frankenstein ensured that it would continue. This film is one of the most classic features in Hollywood history and is also one of the most imitated. Yeah, so... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, Dracula, important. Mm -hmm. yeah. Frankenstein, a masterpiece. Like, yeah. this is pretty much, <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. It, it actually kind of blows me away that they did it, did them both in the same year. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, dang, I, you really nailed it. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah, I can't believe it. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, of course, like with these two right after each other, that's yeah. when they were like, we're making a million of these. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna come up with as many yep. monsters yep. and scenarios. They were like Carl Emley Senior, get over it. We're just yeah, doing get it. Get over it, dude. Yep. We're just doing we're doing horror. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's what the people want. <laughs> Audiences flocked to see Frankenstein because they craved escapism during an uncertain time. 
It was, funnily enough, just what the doctor ordered. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein. Lol. Um. <laughs> Good one. Few figures in pop culture are as immediately recognizable as Frankenstein's monster. If you're familiar with the mad scientist motif, Dr. Frankenstein is said to be the first. It is here that Frankenstein has had the most impact on popular culture. Think of all the TV shows and movies that feature a mad scientist. There's so many. Yeah. And it's all, they all kind of yep. feel the same, you know? We likely wouldn't have films like The Fly or The Rocky Horror Picture Show if Frankenstein didn't exist. There have also been films based entirely on the Frankenstein concept, such as Son of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Ghost of Frankenstein, and numerous others. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. They could not put this one away. Yeah, no. absolutely not. <laughs> and, and Frankenstein appears in a bunch of other things yeah. that aren't necessarily Frankenstein right. movies, too. We can still learn from the original narrative of Frankenstein, though the character's use in much of modern culture is more gimmicky and fun. We think of our own humanity as a result of how terribly the story treats Frankenstein's monster. Are we the monsters? Because Shelley was able to look inward at herself and her humanity, it inspires us to do the same. Frankenstein also asks the question, can man create life? And where there is life, is there a soul? While Frankenstein's story is now 200 years old, it still conveys a timeless message of acceptance and kindness to those around you. There's so many lessons yeah. in Frankenstein. Yeah. Whole thing about, you know, <laughs> who is the monster and who is the man. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. That, that entire, I mean, which is The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom yeah. of the Opera, Dracula and Frankenstein is kind of like a sandwich. You have Hunchback of Notre Dame and Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. They're misunderstood. And they're treated very unfairly. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these two in the middle here, Phantom of the Opera and Dracula. <laughs> I would say Phantom a little more innocent than Dracula, but, eh, but it's yeah. not like he was a good guy. Okay. No. It was, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know unless I mean? you watch the Gerard Butler. Version. Right. I'm s <laughs> so, yeah. So anything you guys want to say before we wrap up? Those were the two ones we wanted to talk about tonight. Yeah, like like I said a minute ago, I just I so surprised and amazed that they got these two like banger monsters out right away. Yeah, yeah. You know, they just hit the ground running and skyrocketed this genre into what it is now. Right. Yeah. There's so many more following this that are just as well known. Yeah. Especially in in the minds of horror fans mm -hmm. and. It's all thanks to these, like, first ones doing so well. Yeah, this was obviously very, very important to the horror genre, but it was also really important to Universal Studios. Oh, yeah. yeah. And what it would become. You know, Universal is one of those studios that's kind of like blockbusters, you know? Mm -hmm. right? You know, Jaws yeah. and uh, E.T. and Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. You know, those are all Steven Spielberg movies, but they're all movies that feature, <laughs> they're always movies yeah. that feature a quote-unquote monster in some capacity, yeah. right? Right. You yep. know, E.T. obviously is not a monster, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that. If mm -hmm. movies like this didn't exist, yeah. if this didn't happen, there would be no Jurassic Park. <sighs> Sorry. What a sad life. Yeah. That, yeah. that would, there's no way. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, a lot of this, a lot of really good came out of this. You know, Carl Emley, you know, kind of taking down 
the studio system as mm-hmm. much as he could at the time. He right. did a really good thing. There's some positive changes in there. Yeah. yeah. And because of these, it's just these incredibly iconic characters and yeah. monsters mm-hmm. that are ingrained in pop culture now. Yeah. Not even, yeah. at this point, not even horror-based. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they're you know, just a part of the monster They're just mash part now. of everything. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> you just draw... Draw a face with fangs and like put the pop the collar up. Yeah. Boom, Dracula. Yeah, mm-hmm. everyone immediately recognized. Mm-hmm. Then the square head with the green. Boom, immediately Frankenstein. It's just everyone knows. It's so ingrained. Yeah, in mm-hmm. in in pop culture and in Halloween, you see them all the time. It's yeah, yeah. They and they are bigger than themselves at this point. Yeah, they've transcended their niche. They've yeah. transcended. Yeah. Their genre. I mean, at this point, it's like you have horror and people go, well, I'm not really interested in horror, but they'll still watch these movies. And a lot of what they enjoy in film is because of movies like this. Yeah. So it is important to know this history and you can at least appreciate it. Mm Yeah. Yep. And now I want to watch the Spanish version of Dracula. Yes, because yes. it looks it looks pretty darn good. It looks super good. Yeah, I kind of want to watch them side by side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet you could probably find a compilation yeah, of some of like the more iconic scenes. Yeah. If you're a fan of horror, you owe at least a small debt of gratitude to the Universal monster movies. These features helped prove the commercial value of horror films and paved the way for frightening films of the future. Movies like Dracula and Frankenstein made innovations in makeup and special effects that would alter cinema forever. But possibly the most important gift that the Universal Monsters gave us was their storytelling. These so-called creatures had humanizing stories that had audiences feeling conflicted about their eventual fates. These films centered on already existing characters that were more complex than your average run-of-the-mill monster of the week. Some of them were misunderstood beings with feelings and desires, and some of them were Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) They were the heroes of their own stories. The impact of the Universal Monsterverse is immeasurable. It's been almost a hundred years since Bela Lugosi uttered the words, I am Dracula. And yet he remains the most prominent archetype for a vampire. Look closely at any depiction of Frankenstein, and you will find the unmistakable features of Boris Karloff. When these faces appeared on the screen, they changed cinema forever, creating a legacy of monstrous proportions. Oh, how many did you count? <laughs> yep, how many monster yep. puns? Go back. <laughs> count them all. Yeah. <sighs> okay, guys. <sighs> Ugh, uh, that is a case close. Ooh. Good one. We did it. Yay. We did it. We did it. Oh, goodness. This is, you know, last thing real quick, though. As the resident not-horror-liker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, like you said, these tra- have transcended that. And yeah. <laughs> they're just icons of cinema. Yeah. Yeah. So, they are. And I can appreciate that, mm-hmm. despite not liking scary things very much. <laughs> to yes. be fair, some of these movies are still pretty scary. Yeah. yeah. I know yeah. a lot of the time it's like, ah, it's old, so it's not scary anymore. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Some of these. Dude, I mean, <laughs> this is terrifying. If, if you go back to our uh, <laughs> one where we talked about Night of the Living Dead, mm, that's true. That's an old movie that made me feel real uneasy afterwards. <laughs> so. Yeah, you think you're yeah. safe. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, it's old. Mm. Yeah, no, no, not always. No, no. not always. No. 
No. They still get you. Oh, well, thank sorry. you so much for listening to our episode. Yeah. Thank you to our patrons, John, JD, Anthony, Shelly, Bob, Jaron, Brad, and Jacob. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Yes. We really Thank appreciate you all very much. We hope yeah. you enjoyed the extended version of this episode. Yes. 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 And please don't forget, if you want to join us February 27th for our live episode at 8 p.m. Eastern time, we are going to do an episode about literary references and Are You Afraid of the Dark, the 90s Nickelodeon TV show. Yes. We also, we did we recorded an interview with DJ McHale. Which yes. was super awesome. Which yeah. we will include. You definitely want to see that. Yeah, super, super do. cool. So thank you so much, everybody. And thank you f- to everyone who supports us, no matter if it's through listening, telling a friend, or donating. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, we appreciate, appreciate it very yeah. much. Uh, BlackCaseDiaries.com. Yes. Get your tickets. Tickets, yeah. Get your tickets. <laughs> do it. All right. Bye. 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 Oh, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be 